Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So good morning, um, everyone. So the theme of, of these next three days um, will be that of uh, the secular Buddha, or we might call it secular Buddhism, um, and also I think some of the flyers say Buddhism without beliefs. It all boils down to the same thing, really. It might be useful to start by just reflecting for a few moments on this word secular. The word in, in its most common usage uh, suggests uh, non-religious. In fact, it's often used as, a, as, as an expression that contrasts a, a secular to a religious approach. Um, I'm not sure I completely use it that way because I don't honestly see why we could not have a secular religion. And I'm able to say that because I'm going to be using the word in its more literal sense. The word secular comes from the Latin expression seculum, which means this age or this time, or this world, if you wish. So, traditionally, or literally, uh, to be secular means to be concerned with this world, to be concerned with the time in which we live, as opposed to a concern with what will follow this life, which is not of this world. In traditional Christianity, this would have been a concern with our eternal fate after death, heaven or hell. In traditional Buddhism, this would be concerned with the potentially infinite lifetimes that will follow this one. I read recently uh, a novel by Hilary Mantle called Wolf Hall. It won the Booker Prize in England last year. It's about Henry VIII's advisor, Thomas Cromwell. But one of the things that struck me about the book, and it's a wonderful book, 
is how it evoked the extent to which people living in that period, this is 16th century England, took very seriously the idea that this life was merely a brief moment which could be cut short at any time. And in fact, in Cromwell's case, his wife, his two daughters, uh, suddenly were taken by the plague, almost overnight, without warning. Or the powers of the state could come and get you, throw you in the Tower of London, and the next thing you know, your head is going to be chopped off. In those days, in the, in the pre-modern times, people lived, I think, with a much more tentative hold on this existence. And the church was of such enormous authority that it really framed people's views of how they lived and what was in store for them. And they took very literally the idea that this life was just a kind of a, a, a threshold for what would follow in eternity. Of course, the Christian version is very black and white. Eternal heaven or eternal hell. And so what you did here had its importance or its, um, its power in terms of how it would affect your eternal life. And likewise in Buddhism, uh, a very, very similar worldview has traditionally governed Buddhist societies. When I was training to be a... When I, when I was a Tibetan Buddhist monk and, and training to be a geshe, I remember one of the verses that I committed to memory. It was by the Sakya Lama, Sakya Pandita. It started, Tzidila Shena Chiba Min. If you are concerned with this life, you are not a Chiba. You are not a practitioner of the Dharma. In other words, you have to overcome concern or attachment uh, to what is occurring in this brief span of life on earth and direct your, your, um, your interests, your commitments, your vision towards this far greater continuity of lifetimes that will follow. And ultimately, by practicing the Dharma, you will either gain liberation from the cycle of birth and death altogether, or if you are a, a Mahayana Buddhist, which the Tibetans are, you will commit yourself to continue being reborn until all sentient beings are liberated from pain. It's a very grand and a very beautiful vision. But it ignores, to some degree, the significance of life here and now. Life here and now only has meaning if you can live your life as a preparation for a better future after death. I think it's very difficult for many of us, probably, brought up 
maybe with only a very tentative allegiance to our ancestral religions, to take that kind of worldview seriously anymore. Of course there are, and there are quite a lot in North America in fact, of people who are, who do take such views very literally, and uh, still persist in that vision. But I suspect for most of us who would be drawn to spend three days here with Martina and myself, I would guess that we no longer see the world that way. We may also, as I am, uh, have accepted a worldview in which we really have no certainty at all that there is any, any continuity of our individual lives after death. We no longer, or let's say, I can't speak for all of us, but I can no longer um, understand what in fact it even means to say that after death something um, essential about Stephen, me, will continue to live in some form, in some other realm. The way in which we have come to understand our existence as human beings through the disciplines of the natural sciences, I think makes it more and more difficult to, um, uh, to understand, to, to even grasp what that might mean. If the human being is the result of millions of years of evolution by natural selection, if uh, this highly complex and large brain seems for most of us probably adequate as a basis for understanding the origins of our consciousness, of our sense of who we are, even though we do not know exactly how that works yet. Nonetheless, uh, the chances are that we are, uh, our, our, our sense of, of, of awe, our sense of mystery, our sense of what life is all about is primarily, perhaps even exclusively, focused upon this world here and now in which we are going to live for an average of around 70 years, 80 years. Of course, it's still true that we could die at any time, and that I think is actually a rather important thing to, to bear in mind. But in my own case, my concern both for myself and for others, has to do with how I live here and now, not for the sake of some post-mortem existence, but because I wish to live a life in which I address as adequately and hopefully as compassionately as possible the suffering that exists on this earth. The only thing we really know for sure is that sentient creatures like ourselves and the animals and insects and so forth flourish on this earth. We have no certainty of there being any other world other than this one. And this, I think, renders our, our sense of life here uh, almost infinitely precious. One of the great visual moments in our recent history 
was the uh, opportunity to see our world from outer space. To see this uh, beautiful blue globe uh, hovering against an infinite blackness uh, speckled with stars. And to recognize that there's no one in charge. It's not being directed by any human agency or any other agency of which we can be conscious apart from the sheer gravitational pull that spins this globe around our sun and how that sun is a solar system which is again doing its own course through uh, the, the galaxy, the Milky Way in which we live. And I feel that this whole way of coming to see the world um, is one that um, has a profound, a very radical effect on how uh, human beings, human consciousness, comes to now evaluate what matters most. And the traditional religious ideas whether they be Christian or Jewish or Buddhist or Hindu or Muslim or whatever, have some, are somehow losing their power as explanations of how life came to be, of accounts of what life is for. And everything in traditional religion, it seems, is now being thrown up into question. Now... Um, this is sometimes, of course, dismissed as a, a view of godless secularism. I remember once, this would have been in the 1990s, I was invited to a conference in Cambridge, England, that was hosted by um, uh, the Muslim Academy for something or other. And the idea, which was... Um, uh, voiced by the Muslim sponsors was to bring together the people of faith, representatives of the faiths of Great Britain, to come together and to try to come up with a, a common statement um, of religious conviction that would hopefully uh, stem the tide of godless secularism. And I was invited as a representative of the Buddhists which was probably not a very good choice. <laughs> but by the end of it, I realized I rather liked godless secularism. <laughs> I had no problem with it at all. And my suspicion and my, um, uh, I guess, dislike, really, or feeling of being very uncomfortable with the what seemed to be a rather narrow dogmatic position being put forth by the religions was, was precisely that which I felt less and less uh, comfortable with. So that is, is what I mean by secular. Not necessarily anti-religious, because I, I still use the word religious, and I find it, in some respects... Uh, speaks to me more than this rather vacuous idea of spiritual or even more vacuous spirituality 
which I really don't know what that means. I suppose it has to do with a concern with meaning and, and purpose and things like that, but I find the word rather hollow, whereas the term religious still conveys for me a certain, uh, a certain sense of depth, a certain sense of passion, um, a certain deep concern with what matters most to us in our lives, a certain concern for what, um, or what Paul Tillich called uh, the state of being ultimately concerned. That was Tillich's definition of faith. Uh, faith was the state of, uh, of being ultimately concerned about something. In other words, to take one's life with a deep seriousness and to really be committed to uncovering and to then live by what matters most in your life. And Tillich went even further. Tillich, who was a Lutheran Protestant theologian who was active here in in North America in the 1960s. For, for uh, 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 Tillich, God was, the word God was abandoned. And instead he used this word ultimate concern. God is what you are ultimately concerned about. Now of course many Christians thought this was a rather, was going a little bit too far because it tended to subjectify the whole notion of God, rather than preserve him with a capital H out there in the blue yonder somewhere. But it turned, uh, I think Tillich was very important. He was certainly very important in my own, uh, my own uh, thinking and writing. In turning uh, the notion of religion, as it were, far more into a deeply personal and felt sense of what matters most in this life for oneself and for all others. And that to me would be a definition of a secular religion. Now I'm going to suggest that this was actually pretty much what the Buddha himself set out to do. Um, I don't believe that uh, Siddhartha Gautama has sought to found another religion of the classical sort, uh, one that was primarily concerned with our destiny after death, but was concerned with how we live our lives here and now. And I'm going to, over the next uh, days, uh, draw on some texts from the, the Pali Canon, in which uh, I hope to uh, pull together uh, a number of passages which seem to, or hopefully, will give us a foundation for um, a secular Buddhism. Now, when I use this word secular Buddhism, it's, it's, one might think that what one is going to do is give primary concern to this world, and then to just pick bits and pieces from Buddhism, like the teachings on compassion or wisdom, and then just try to give them a secular spin. And this, of course, is what, in fact, is happening, say, in much of the work that's being done with the idea of mindfulness. Mindfulness, particularly as it's used um, in, a, thera in a, a therapeutic context, in a non-Buddhist environment, 
stripped of its Buddhist uh, antecedents and contexts, and then singled out as a, a therapeutic technique, um, is, of course, a secularization of a classical Buddhist idea. But very often that is done by somehow removing it from its matrix of, of Buddhist thought, which traditionally is what has given it meaning and sense and has enabled it to be part of a spiritual, don't like that word, or religious, <laughs> don't like that word much either, practice. So what I want to do is try to find, um, it's not just to try to give secular readings to particular Buddhist concepts, which I probably will be doing, but also to try to get a clearer sense of the Buddha's own seculum. In other words, what kind of world did the Buddha live in? I think to understand the secular dimension of, of Siddhartha Gautama's teaching, we need to understand his seculum, the kind of world he lived in, the kind of world that he was responding to, the kind of world that threw up the sorts of conflicts and tensions and struggles that throughout his life he had to deal with. Part of the problem we have with the figure of Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, is that he has become rather impossibly idealized. Uh, the iconography um, is a case in point. Um, the images of the Buddha, which are so globalized now, and commodified, uh, suggests this rather weird-looking creature with uh, a big bump on his head and little knots of coiled hair and um, uh, a very strange body, if you stop to think about it for a minute, that is actually an attempt to um, illustrate or to give form to, uh, to a rather mythic figure called the Mahapurusa, the great person, who is possessed of 32 major and 80 minor physical characteristics that are not actually human characteristics at all. In the early Buddhist community, for about the first 500 years, uh, there was no attempt to portray the Buddha in any kind of uh, physical form. And um, in some ways, I'd like to return to that pre-iconic sense of the Buddha. If you go to the, um, the Musée Guimet in Paris, uh, there is a, um, a wonderful uh, uh, stone bas-relief. It's about six foot high, three foot wide. And carved on it, is the account of the Buddha's conquest of Mara, the, uh, that, that very classical moment just before the awakening when the Buddha is said to have overcome the forces of Mara or the demonic, the devil. And what this bas-relief depicts is a, a throne, and on top of the throne, something that looks just like a zafu. Behind the zafu is a tree, the trunk of a tree, and then the beginnings of its limbs. And then all around this, you will find a halo of 
demonic-looking figures, scowling and grimacing and pointing arrows and spears and hatchets at nothing. To our modern eye, it looks as though, at first glance, that somebody's removed the Buddha image, that there was never a Buddha image there. The Buddha was simply depicted as an empty space, and he was only suggested by, in this case, the throne, the cushion, and the tree, with nothing on it. And the demons are attack, uh, attacking literally an emptiness. Now this is a very, very different um, way of uh, communicating what in fact the Buddha, who the Buddha was, what the Buddha stood for, without giving this presence any kind of attribute, it allows us to think of, of, of awakening as uh, an open set of possibilities. As soon as you introduce a form, you're, you're, you are committed to presenting that form as having certain attributes. What's his mouth doing? Is he smiling? Is he neutral? Is he slightly pissed off? What are his hands doing? You, you have to put the hands somewhere. Is he meditating? Is he teaching? Is he waving goodbye to his dad? You have to do something with the hands. You have to do something with the legs. You have to somehow uh, embody within that form certain symbols or certain symbolic meanings. In other words, you narrow down what was previously just an open set of possibilities into a particular set of gestures, mudras, and facial expressions. Now, on the one hand, that gives us a focus for devotion, a focus for, for a certain religious relationship to this figure, but the problem is it, um, it, destru it, it, it uh, undermines this rather powerful and iconic um, absence of image. Now, recently, Martin and I were in um, were in India, and we were visiting some of the earliest um, what was they? They're usually called cave temples, but really they should be called rock-cut temples in India. These are the only Buddhist temples that have survived intact. Uh, since the destruction of Buddhism in India about a thousand years ago. And some of these rock-cut temples uh, go back to about the second century BC. That's only 300, 200 years after the Buddha. Two or three hundred years after the Buddha. Before the time of Christ. And when you go into some of these temples, and they're, they're literally chipped out of the rock, uh, they are, they're not caves that are then em embellished. They are uh, chipped out with chisels by hand out of, in the case of, of the most famous ones, black basalt. Now, black basalt is not wimpy sandstone. This is very hard, solid stuff. And these, um, these early Buddhist communities created their temples in, inside mountains, basically, they chipped them out. And the largest one 
is at a place called Karola. It's about two and a half hours south of Bombay. It's in perfect condition. And it is, uh, it's about 100 feet long, about 30 feet high. In other words, it's almost as big as a, the interior of a cathedral. And there is no icons at all. There's no Buddha images. Uh, nothing to represent uh, any of the values of Buddhism in human form. The only um, object around which this space is somehow focused is a, a very early stupa. And again, the stupa here is not like the ones we're used to seeing in Tibet or in Japan or wherever. But it is basically just primary Euclidean forms. It's an it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a unadorned cylinder of rock on, mounted on which is an unadorned sphere mounted on which is an unadorned cube. That's it. And this was, um, and remember, that wasn't imported into the space. That was carved out. It's very difficult to get your mind around this. Th these temples are voids, which again suggests the idea of the early pre-iconic art as being just empty space. These are negative temples. And so the, the, the rock of which constitutes the stupa is, is what's left. And it's been sort of carved around. Stuff has been taken out, leaving that, those three primary Euclidean shapes. Now that's a very different architectural or sculptural um, uh, a creation or form the the early Buddhist community somehow uh, uh, used to embody its sense of what its values and its purposes than say the later rock carved temples which date about a thousand years after that which are packed full of Buddha images bodhisattvas almost in a kind of baroque uh, enthusiasm. So in some senses, um, when we go back into the early tradition, we, we return to a very, very uh, simple, but I find extremely potent uh, set of, uh, of, uh, of spaces um, and structures that are unadorned, thereby allowing, as it were, for the imagination, for the intelligence to imagine, to picture, to um, explore the possibilities that are implicit in those empty spaces. As with Christianity, and I guess, well, Islam has remained very true to its aniconic principles. But <laughs> what I admire in these early forms of art um, are precisely what I admire in some of these early passages that I'm going to be, to be reading out to you over the next three days. We, we, we tend to get back closer and closer to um, the seculum, to the world, to the time that existed when the Buddha was teaching and shortly afterwards. 
Now, I'm not, I'm not a fundamentalist. In other words, I'm not interested in, 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 in going back to these early sources and then saying, this is what the Buddha really taught, and we can stop there. But rather, I'm interested in going back to these early passages in order to get a clearer sense of how the Buddha was teaching in his world, in order that we can have a what I would argue is a, is a firmer foundation for being able to imagine and articulate a dharma that is appropriate to our seculum, to our world. And this will operate on a number of levels in terms of, let's say, psychological insight, but equally in terms of the Buddha's vision of another kind of society. <coughs> The social dimension of the Buddha's teaching has, I feel, been largely um, forgotten in the course of the history of Buddhism itself, particularly as, as Buddhism became more and more of a, a religious institution, usually governed by renunciate monks and nuns, mainly monks. And that social dimension, I think, has been rather forgotten. I'm going to read out a, a parable which um, is found in the Sanyutta Nikaya. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with the different elements of the Pali Canon, um, you'll find in my most recent book um, an appendix called the Pali Canon, Appendix 1, in which I give a sketch of what that body of literature um, uh, is, is about, and I also describe the various sections within the canon. You can look it all up there. The Sanyutta Nikaya means the, the, the body of teachings of discourses that are connected by theme. Suppose, monks, the Buddha says, a man wandering through a forest would see an ancient path traveled upon by people in the past. He would follow it and would see an ancient city, an ancient capital that had been inhabited by people with parks, groves, ponds, and ramparts, a delightful place. Then that man would inform the king or a royal minister and say, Sire, Know that while wandering through the forest, I saw an ancient path. I followed it and saw an ancient city. Renovate that city, sire. Then the king or royal minister would renovate the city. And sometime later, that city would become successful and prosperous, well populated attained to growth and expansion. That's the metaphor. And then the Buddha goes on to explain what it means. <coughs> so too, monks, I saw the ancient path traveled by the Buddhas of the past, the fully awakened ones of the past. And what is that ancient path? It is just this noble eightfold path that is, appropriate seeing, appropriate thinking, speaking, 
acting, working, trying, being mindful, and being concentrated, better known as right view, right thought, right speech, right action. I followed that path, and by doing so, I have directly known the Four Noble Truths. I mean, curiously, the text kind of peters out at this point and um, doesn't elaborate any further. But the, what is, 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 is quite clear is that the metaphor of this man who finds when he's wandering in a forest an ancient path and follows it and it leads to the ruins of an ancient city and then he gets the king and his ministers to rebuild the ancient city this is a way of talking about how the Buddha envisioned his own teaching on earth that the Eightfold Path which is the path leads to the Four Noble Truths now, again, for some of us who are used to traditional Buddhism, we might find that a bit odd. Because surely, whenever we read about the Eightfold Path, it is usually described as the Eightfold Path that leads to the end of suffering, which is Nirvana. The Eightfold Path which leads us to Nirvana, the cessation of greed and hatred and delusion, and after death, the cessation of rebirth of no longer being born in this world. But here, we have a very different picture altogether. Here we have an idea of a path that leads to four noble truths, and I'm going to spend a lot of time this next days going through these four noble truths. But the four noble truths in this model are quite clearly a template for a city the building of a city or as my colleague Robert Thurman calls it a matrix a civilizing matrix a matrix of a civilizational matrix which is a very sort of Thurman-esque <laughs> way of expressing it but in fact it's a very beautiful expression I think it captures this exactly because what is a city? In Latin, a city is a civitas. A civitas is the basis of our word civilization. A civilization is founded upon the city. Now, the trouble today is the city has often assumed a very negative connotation. A great big industrial city with, you know, desolate inner city areas of crime and drug addiction and a blight on the landscape and far too big and somehow cutting us off from our relationship with the natural world. A city has come to be something uh, rather destructive and sinister for many of us. And of course there is a romantic movement that is very often allied with, with Buddhism um, which seeks a kind of more gentle, rural, environmentally conscious return to the soil, to a life of simplicity, a life of fresh air and nature and so forth and so on. 
And yet here we have the Buddha talking about his teaching as being one that is a matrix for the creation of a city. We'll also find that um, when we look at the first sermon and he starts talking about the middle path, um, he says the middle path avoids two dead ends. It's usually translated as two extremes. The extreme of of sensory indulgence on the one hand, the extreme of self-mortification on the other. And both of these extremes he, he describes as gamma in Pali. And gamma means village. Village-like. <coughs> Hick-like. <laughs> as you say in America. Uh, and in fact, interestingly... It's exactly the same meaning as the word um, in English, pagan. Paganus in Latin means a villager. And the early Greek and Christian traditions saw themselves likewise as, 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 not, as, as going beyond the limitations of paganism. Again, paganism has come nowadays to sound rather cool and sexy. <laughs> We'd all like to be pagans again. But again, the danger here is that we, we project our current um, value system or preferences or biases back onto the Buddha's time and think those things must have meant the same for him too. They didn't. The Buddha was born at a very crucial moment in the um, history of the Indian subcontinent where um, there was sufficient economic development in the Gangetic Plain to enable a surplus of production. In other words, the Aryan settlers, those nomadic tribes that had come into <coughs> India about 1,000, 2,000 years before the Buddha's birth and had settled the Gangetic Plain, had for you know, all of that period largely lived in, in rural environments with the village, maybe the small market town, as the main uh, unit of habitation. The people had been bound to the earth um, in agrarian toil for hundreds of years, probably just um, managing to survive from one season to the next a sort of subsistence agriculture. We find in the period of the Vedas, which are the early hymns of the, of the Aryan people, uh, the appearance of figures called rishi, in other words, sages, usually elderly men, who um, were able to um, have sufficient free time to begin to communicate with the gods. And they, they created, as it were, the foundation for the Brahmanic society in which certain members of the community, the priests, had the role of um, being intercessionaries with the gods. And if you read the Vedas, it's all about uh, supplications to the gods to um, make sacrifices to the gods in order that the gods would be pleased with humans and would maintain harmony between heaven and earth. But by the time of the Buddha, 
uh, this simple form of uh, agrarian society um, based in the villages and in small confederations of tribes and clans had given way to the emergence of the first uh, towns and cities. Now, this was made possible because of surplus, that the agricultural societies were, were sufficiently successful to be producing more than they needed for their own survival. Now, this surplus um, enabled two things to start happening. It enabled uh, rulers, Raja, to um, employ standing armies. In other words, able-bodied men who were able to train in military discipline and did not have to spend their time tilling the fields. And they could be supported by the surplus of the community. The other thing, <coughs> the other thing that it enabled was um, uh, it, it, it enabled enough surplus to provide for men and women who were not interested in just working the fields all day, but were fired up by what we would call uh, philosophical questions or existential questions or religious questions and wanted to dedicate their lives to pursue these, what we would call a life of the mind. So they dropped out and survived by begging. And they were able to do that only because there was enough to go round that was surplus to need. And it's this group of wandering mendicants, um, or bhikkhus, the word bhikkhu li li literally means beggar, that the Buddha, or the young, print, the young Siddhartha, uh, became a member of. There, was a, there seems to have been a large number, and not only men, there were also women who, who did this, um, who lived a very simple life, a celibate life, a life of abstinence, and often eating just one meal a day that they would gather by going round the villages with a bowl and getting enough food to survive, and living in parks under very primitive shelters, and meditating and discussing these issues with each other, studying, seeking truth. And all of this was only possible because of economic surplus. So the Buddha was born at this time. It wasn't the very first moment in which this movement had started. It had already been going for some period. And it had already reached a point where the first cities on the Gangetic Plain were beginning to emerge. And invariably, the main cities, well, not invariably, there was one exception, but the two biggest cities, the one south of the Ganges was Rajgir, and the one north of the Ganges was Shravasti. And they were the capitals of the two great kingdoms of the Buddha's day, Magadha in the south and Kosala in the north. And the Buddha considered himself to be a subject of the king of Kosala. Now, we have to therefore note here that there's no suggestion in the early canon that the Buddha or the Siddhartha 
was a prince who was going to inherit a kingdom. This is nonsense. He was the son of an elder... Uh, uh, an el uh, he was, his father was the chairman of the local village council, basically. Um, maybe villages, maybe two, let's say a small town council. His father was the local mayor. And the council of the village, or the villages of Sakya, um, were governed by what is technically called um, an oligarchy. In other words, a council of elders who would decide upon the affairs of the community and they would also be magistrates, they would be responsible for maybe forming militias at times of conflict. But by the time the Buddha was born, this old tribal republican oligarchy um, no longer had power of its own. It was a vassal state to the king of Korsala in Shravasti, about 80 miles to the west. Now, I think the reason why this is all important is because it puts the, this metaphor of the city into context. The Buddha's primary audience was the emergent middle class, was the emerging um, leaders of these uh, newly formed kingdoms. In fact, King Persenadi of Korsala, who was the most powerful man in the whole area north of the Ganges, was the Buddha's prime benefactor and sponsor, and was someone who had a close relationship with him throughout his life. It's very likely, in fact, that the two men knew each other when they were young, and they had their last recorded meeting is when they are both 80 years old, the very last years of their respective lives. And the Buddha's main base was outside the walls of the city of Shravasti. It was called the Jetta's Grove. And this was a, a fairly lavish establishment. Lots of halls and huts and uh, meditation areas, walking areas, clinics, um, great big water tanks for washing oneself, washing clothes. In other words, the Buddha focused his activities on the edge of large urban settlements. Not out in the mountains, out, out in the forests. He encouraged, of course, his monks and his nuns to go into the forest to meditate, but precisely because for the most part, they were living in fairly busy, noisy places. They were living in the proximity of these main centers of power and wealth and trade um, that was, the, in a sense, the engine that drove the um, economy and thereby provided sufficient wealth to, to maintain these large centers, and also that provided security. The Buddha couldn't have done what he did had he not had the guarantee of security. In other words, that his centers wouldn't be overrun by brigands or rogue militias and destroyed, but would be protected by the might of the king. Now, in this metaphor that I've been reading out, the Buddha sees his teaching 
as the template for the building of a city. So he's taking the image of the city, the beginnings of these cities, and seeing that his teaching is giving a matrix of, for how such a world could emerge upon a coherent set of values and practices which had both a, an inner dimension, a spiritual dimension, a moral dimension, which is very crucial, and also a social dimension. So if you look at the structure of the Eightfold Path, it has to do with right view, or I would translate it, appropriate seeing and thinking, which are very much the internal vision or worldview that animates you, which are the foundation for your how, how you speak, how you act, which is the moral dimension of your life, your relationships with others, with whom you communicate, with whom you live. It's the basis for your livelihood, which is your economic life. And only when those conditions are established does he begin to talk about meditation, which again returns us to the cultivation of our own inner lives. But the Buddha doesn't present his path as being a spiritual path, pure and simple, a process of, of, of becoming good at mindfulness and concentration. But it is an integrated vision of what a human life can be. And the Four Noble Truths flesh this out in a way that um, embeds these practices within a much um, deeper awareness of the suffering of life, of how we respond and react to suffering by becoming self-centered and attached and fearful and full of hate for those who seem to cause us suffering. And how we can start from that renewed sense of the world's pain in such a way that we can create a society that can respond to it effectively. That's very sketchy. But we will look in more detail in the days that follow at how that works. So I'm not going to say much more uh, this morning. Um, I hope this has been a sufficient introduction to what I mean by the word secular and how we can find in the, in the earliest text that we have um, an entirely secular account of the Buddha's teaching in his own words, which I think is very valuable. So we don't have to think of engaged Buddhism as somehow something added on but it's actually something that's actually there right at the outset. And what I'm going to try and do is rethink uh, the Buddha's teaching from the ground up rather than take it for granted in its various Asian forms we've inherited and then add on a kind of secular component. I think we have to dismantle the whole superstructure of Buddhism that is developed so far and try to recover what lies on the ground floor and then imagine what we could build up upon that foundation.